off in a very real sense. Our passage this morning is a continuation of what we read at the end of Philippians chapter 1 a couple weeks ago before we took a brief break for our Missions Emphasis Sunday. Uh, You remember that Paul had concluded that chapter by describing the life that was worthy of the gospel, and this morning he continues that same theme, although from a slightly different perspective. Last time, at the end of Philippians 1, it was a, what does it mean to live a life worthy of the gospel in the face of external forces and pressures? And so Paul talked about standing together, striving together, and and he used a lot of these uh, fighting and athletic images, very evocative word pictures. Here at the beginning of Philippians chapter 2, Paul's discussing what it means to be worthy of the gospel as you face the internal forces and pressures. And we see that particularly in verse 3 when Paul mentions rivalry or selfish ambition and conceit. And and really, to see that Paul is talking about the same large theme, if you actually read uh, chapter 129 right into chapter 2, verse 1, you'll see that it's almost seamless. So let me do that for you real quick, backing up to chapter 1, verse 29. Paul writes, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy. You notice when you read it like that without the chapter-verse divisions, the flow of thought is just seamless. Paul is continuing his concept of what it means to live a worthy life of the gospel, except now he shifts to more the internal dynamics. So he introduces what's one of the major themes of the entire book of Philippians, and that's the theme of humility. Now I get it, in comparison to last time we looked at Philippians, when Paul's talking about these evocative images of athletes competing together, gladiators fighting together, humility is not all that exciting. I mean, even culturally, humility is not an exciting topic. What's the last workout song you ever heard of on that topic, right? Humility isn't something people get excited about. It's not something people talk about on Facebook. It's, it's an odd thing to tell your friends that you're working on your humility because honestly, what are you gonna respond when they ask you how that's coming along, right? Oh, I'm crushing it. Oh, I'm doing so much more humble this week. Like right now, I'm actually being even more humble than I actually am because I wanna be humble. I'm just nailing humility. It just doesn't work that way. The virtue of humility is the moral equivalent of cauliflower, right? It just, it looks strange. You know you should have it, but it's hard to swallow. You'd rather just avoid the whole thing altogether. And coupled with the fact that we live in a, a selfie generation that prizes self-esteem and achievement, what place does humility actually have in such a culture? According to Paul, humility has the preeminent place especially if you're going to live in community with other people. Humility has the foremost place if you're going to be worthy of the gospel. Humility is of paramount importance if you're going to be a follower of Christ. When we ended chapter one of Philippians, Paul wanted the Philippians to know what does it mean to be worthy of the gospel when you face threats and pressures from outside the Christian community that could destroy it. And now as he begins chapter two, he wants the same Philippians and by application us to know what does it mean to be worthy of the gospel when you now face 
internal pressures and forces inside the Christian community that can destroy it. And so he talks about humility. And so whether it's things from the outside or things on the inside, Christians have to be constantly vigilant and asking, how can I be worthy of the gospel? And so since Paul says humility is of paramount importance, when you're facing the internal dynamics of the Christian community, we're going to look at four issues on humility. Number one, the motives of humility. Number two, the command to humility. Number three, the causes that fight against humility. And then finally, number four, the means to humility. And we'll look at those one at a time right now. Let's look at the motives for humility first. We find that in, in verse one, and grammatically, just to let you know, grammatically, the verb that holds Paul's whole argument together in these five verses is actually in verse two. It's the command, make my joy complete. But typically, and we see this all throughout Paul's writings, before Paul offers a command of what you ought to do, he normally precedes it with promises or or kind of realities that are true of all Christians that form the basis by which the command is supposed to be lived out. And so he does the same thing here this morning with verse one, and he offers this picture of these four realities, encouragement, comfort, affection, and sympathy. Now, honestly, uh, this is a, a, a tough one because if you read four theologians or scholars, you'll get six ideas of what Paul was meaning by talking about encouragement in Christ, comfort from love. But, but as I studied through this, there are probably about two ways to take this. Like many people today, in the ancient world, Greco-Roman culture, people were often filled with anxiety about the future would they succumb to disease? Would they suffer famine? Would they face war? Would they face an untimely death? Or maybe would fate deal them a better hand? So in those times, they would look to magic and the gods in the same way we today, moderns, look to science to find a way to control the, 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 the things that affect our future. But in ancient times, they often worried, did I get the right incantation? Is my sacrifice acceptable to the gods? Is my amulet powerful enough? They worried if the things they trusted in will do the job, just like we worry if the things we trust in. Will my portfolio hold its value? Will this medication be the thing? We worry about the things that we trust in. Will they actually help us out? And so Paul, into this world of uncertainty, says to them that the gospel has brought the encouragement and comfort, that life is not up to the dictates of these gods of Olympus, that life is not up to the fates of unknowns, that life is not some evolutionary accident, but there is an actual personal living God that has created all things and controls all things. The gospel brought the good news that this God has shown his love in Jesus Christ who because of his affection and sympathy healed the sick, raised the dead in anticipation of the one day when there would be no sickness and there would be no death. And this gospel brought the Philippians into a participation of the spirit. That word is also, we define it, translate it as fellowship. This gospel brought them into a fellowship of the spirit among others other people called the church, that if everyone followed the examples of Christ, they would help each other through the trials of this life until that great day. And so Paul talks about all this encouragement, comfort, affection, and sympathy that God has shown us in the revelation of the gospel message. Now, some way, another way to look at that 
is that Paul's referring to all the benefits that the Philippians receive by being in this community, the church. All the encouragement and comfort and affection and sympathy they receive from one another by doing life together. Now, however you take them, whether it's totally vertical as what Paul's referring to is the, the grace of the gospel given to us, or you take that as totally horizontal, it's the, the, as those gospel graces are mediated to us through the church, either way, they go back to God's grace being given to us. So regardless of how we reflect on it, Paul is saying, as he gives them the command to humility, he's going to ground it in the blessings that these Christians have received as a result of the gospel. Whether those blessings directly flow from God himself from the gospel, or those blessings are mediated through others who've been changed by the gospel. Either way, the command to humility is based in the reality of God giving us his grace. Friends, that's just the the first thing we need to realize, any response to God must be a response to his grace. Any response to the commands of scripture must come from a heart that's responding to what God has already done for us and through us to us. So the motive for humility is the very grace we find in the gospels. However you reflect on it, whether it's purely what God has done for you or what God is doing, doing through you, the motive of our humility is God's grace. And in verse two to four, Paul now gives the command to humility, and you see that very well there. It's, it almost sounds like a command. Paul says, make my joy, or complete my joy. If you have an NIV, it's make my joy fill. ESV is complete my joy. I mean, if you read that carefully, it sounds like a command. So the question is, when Paul says, complete my joy, what's the first thing we should ask? Well, how? And Paul answers that. Look at that prepositional phrase right after the verb. Complete my joy by being, and then he follows it up with four commands or four statements. So the command to humility, Paul says, complete my joy. We ask how, he answers this by saying, by being of the same mind, having the same love, being same soul, the word there, the phrase, being a full of cord, literally means one soul. So be of the same mind, of the same love, of the same soul, one-minded. Now we say, well that's a lot of sames there. Same as what? What are these pronouns referring to? Well, what do pronouns typically refer to? They refer to the noun that they're, they're emphasizing. He's referring to the four realities he just addressed in verse one. In other words, all these things you've received from God and being part of the community of God's people, you pass them on. In the same way you've been encouraged in Christ, you encourage others. In the same way you've been comforted, you comfort others. In the same way you've been shown affection and sympathy, you do the same. In the same way you've been brought into the fellowship, you bring others too. Specifically though, I think Paul has something even more specific in mind because you know, the, the, one of the challenges of reading a, studying a book like we are is we sometimes lose the forest for the trees we're studying. Specifically, when Paul's talking about having the same mind and the same love, I think he's referring to the very mindset and love he talked about in chapter one. Have the same mindset that life is Christ, that Christ is life for me to live as Christ and die is gain. Have that mindset. Have the same love. And he prayed for in chapter one, verse nine, that your love would grow and abound with knowledge and discernment. 
Have the same mindset, Philippians 1.21. Have the same love, Philippians 1.9. Being in full accord, being convinced that the good work he started in you, Philippians 1.6, he's going to finish it. He's going to make it happen because God is sovereign. Have that mindset. Have that same mindset. Have that same love. Be in full accord of that and have a single purpose. Be one-minded. Be partners in the gospel. Live for what matters. I think Paul's specifically referring to that. But in order for that to work, in order for us to have the mindset and the affection that Paul is addressing, it's going to require humility. So he explicitly states it in verse 3. Because to have this mindset that, that Christ is life, to, to grow in love the way Paul commands it, to live for things that matter, to live, to be partnered with the gospel, necessarily demands that our preferences, our agendas, even our perspectives are secondary to God's. Because after all, like the Philippians, we are citizens of God's kingdom and not the other way around. And the subtlety of placing ourselves first, our agenda, our perspective, our preferences, was also showing up in the Philippian church in subtle but significant ways. So if you're carefully reading through the book, notice how Paul keeps addressing it. So first, Paul writes in Philippians 2, our very passage, verses 2 to 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Uh, this attitude to place themselves for first was showing up in complaining and grumbling. So in Philippians 2, 14, it says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. The attitude of putting ourselves first was starting to fracture relationships. People wanted their way, not, didn't want to submit to one another, and so relationships started to fracture. So Paul writes in Philippians 4, 2, I entreat Eodia and I entreat Synctity to agree in the Lord. And then most tragically, the desire to put our own preferences, our perspectives, our view of life ahead of the Lord hardens us and leads us to fall away from God. So Paul addresses that in Philippians 3, 18 and 19. For many, Paul writes, of whom I've often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. And remember, friends, the Philippian church, this is one of Paul's favorite churches. They were, by and large, partners in the gospel. They were bearing fruit. They were supporting Paul. These weren't those Corinthians that we read about that were so wild and disobedient. They had all these social issues in the church. These weren't the Galatians who were compromising the very gospel message. These were the Philippians, Paul's favorites. But if lack of humility could endanger this church, then lack of humility can endanger any church. So next in verse three, Paul says, he tells us why it's so hard to exercise this kind of humility, why it's hard to develop humility, and he discusses in particular two human traits that fight against humility constantly. So the motives of humility is the grace of the gospel shown to us either directly in our own salvation or as it's mediated when we're part of a local church. 
The command to humility is in order for that to work, I need to recognize that my perspective has to be biblical. My appetites have to be biblical. My desires, my values, my priorities need to be informed by a biblical values priorities, not my own. And he talks about this is why it's so hard though. And he gives us two words, they're ethical words, and in your translation, I think it's translation as either rivalry or selfish ambition and conceit. See that in verse three, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. Now I've translated them this way, as self-seeking and glory thieving. The reason I did that is, is the word for selfish ambition, erytheion, is a, is a kind of a mercenary term. It's this mentality that I look out for number one, I am not God-seeking, I'm self-seeking. It's about what I want out of this equation. It's, it's kind of the, the worship of the unholy trinity, right? Me, myself, and I. It's what I want here, Eritherion. It's about me, it's self-seeking. It's just looking out for number one. And then the next word that Paul uses, kenodoxion, uh, I call it glory thieving. It's like the first one, except it's not about just me, it's about what you have that I want, and I'm gonna come take it. Now, if you remember uh, older translations, maybe you got a King James version. I think King James renders it really cool as vain glory. That's how they, vain glory. The word itself that we translated as conceit comes from two Greek words, keno and doxa. Keno literally means empty. The, The neat thing is, Paul's gonna use the same word next week as we study about what Jesus did in coming down from heaven. He, he kennowed, he made himself empty. Another nuance to it is that it's, it's hunger, it's a hunger. So keno, empty, hunger, doxa, glory, literally means empty of glory or hungering for glory. Vain glory, the, old, the, the King James translated it. Literally, kenodoxa means I don't matter, I have no substance. Because, let me, let me back up. If you recall, doxa, Glory means weight, right? It means substance. So you people from more of the hippie generation, you remember the phrase, man, that's heavy, right? We don't, we don't ever say that anymore. What you meant was that had substance, it had meaning. Glory literally means weight. Kenodoxa means no weight, no substance. You don't matter. You're insignificant, you're nothing. Friends, isn't that at the heart of all conceit and self-centered and and pride? This feeling that I, I need to feel significant and people are trying to make up for feeling like they don't matter. So, so if they feel too small or unseen, they're gonna throw their weight around. That's another expression that comes from doxa, weight. We throw our weight around so that people understand our point of view, that I have my way, that I'm gonna make myself known. People don't seek out my opinion, so I'm self-seeking myself. Isn't that the heart of all the kinds of arguments and fraction, uh, factions we have? I want my way to be because I'm significant, not you. I have substance, I have meaning, I I matter. Friends, it's one of the worst feelings in the world when you feel that you don't matter. It's one of the worst human experiences to feel insignificant, that you have no meaning. 
That's why Friedrich Nietzsche, the existentialist philosopher, went insane because he actually was consistent in his philosophy. He said, there is no God. There is no God, so life is absurd. There's no meaning in life, and he went insane because he was actually honest with the implications of a meaningless life because there, when in his view there was no God, there could be no meaning. So what point do I have at all? Friends, people prefer to be loved, but we'll take being hated as long as we're not ignored or treated like we don't matter at all. So this empty glory, this hunger glory leads to glory thieving. And the way this works is Whatever you feel will give you glory, which is to say whatever you feel will make you feel significant, that you matter, that you have substance. You will fight like crazy to take it or keep it, even if it doesn't belong to you. You'll do whatever it takes. So if you feel that it's your youth and your beauty that makes you matter, you will fight tooth and nail to stay young and fit. If it's your influence that makes you feel significant, you'll fight anyone or anything that threatens to take it away. If it's your reputation that matters, you'll get angry, you'll get defensive, you'll conceal even the truth so your reputation isn't tarnished. And if it can happen to the Philippians, it can happen to us. Because for all of our differences with these ancient people, we share a fundamental reality that we are all self-seeking glory thieves because we are all impacted by sin. See, if you go back in Genesis, you can go back to Genesis chapter 1, 26 uh, and 27. It, it teaches us that humanity was made by creation. We were made to reflect a glory that was truly weighty and had substance and had eternal significance. But because of sin, we are curved inward on ourselves, and we want that glory for ourselves. See, the church father uh, Augustine and the reformer Martin Luther said the essence of sin, you wanna know what the essence of sin is? The essence of sin was in curvatus in se. That's a Latin word, everything sounds cooler in Latin. In curvatus in se, curved inward. The essence of sin, we were created to live out and above and looking out there to reflect the glory of something truly significant and weighty, but when we rejected God in Genesis 3, the essence of sin curved us inward, and now all we look at is ourselves, and we were not created glorious by ourselves, and so we're never satisfied. Go with me to, to Romans chapter one. Romans chapter one, this is, this is how you build your theology. You let scripture interpret scripture. So if you're using a pew Bible, uh, it's uh, chap, uh, page 939, Romans chapter one. And I just wanna read, uh, in, in a sense, Paul's commentary on Genesis three, uh, Paul explaining what he's writing in Philippians two. Romans chapter one, I'm gonna read verse 21 to 23. For although they, speaking of humanity, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory, the doxa of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. 
Friends, we were created to give glory to God because of sin. We now take glory for ourselves, but we are never truly satisfied. What about you, but have you ever had lunch with one of your vegan friends? I'm sorry if you're a vegan or vegetarian, but I'm not. But you know, you have lunch and, and they order a meatless hamburger, right? So in my world, I have no category for meatless hamburger. Yes, I suppose from their point of view, it's a, it's a burger, right? But, but it never satisfies, no matter how many times you tell yourself it tastes like meat. It will never do that. Your meatless hamburger can never compare to my right off the grill, grizzle dripping down the hand, greasy, fat, dead animal flesh as I eat into that tasty burger. Your meatless whatever thing, tofu burger, will never satisfy like mine, right? Friends, Hamburgers were meant to have meat like people were meant to give God glory whenever you mess with the recipe of life. It's never satisfying. I don't know how I got there, but it seems to make sense in my mind. (laughs) But it's true. We were meant to give God glory, not glory in ourselves or other things. We were meant to make sure God has his way, not to fight for my way. We were meant to make sure everyone knows God and gives him his due, not for everyone to know you and give you yours. But because of sin, we've become in curvatus and say it's all about us. And that's not how we were designed, and it's never going to satisfy. No matter how you try to grasp glory, whether it's through youth and beauty or success or prestige or reputation or popularity, it won't ever satisfy you because that's not what you were made to do. So Paul's command is to directly fight against the cause. He says, do nothing from self-seeking or glory-thieving. Rather, look out for the needs of others. Do the exact opposite. But here's the problem. Right, so that is the solution. If we're incurved inward from sin, gospel redemption brings us outward. But how can we do that when that's very the exact opposite of what we were designed to be and do? How can we be humble if our very essence is to be arrogant? How can we give glory to others and God himself when our, desire, our sin wants the glory for ourselves? See, these are the, the, the causes that fight against humility, and now Paul ends by showing us the means to humility. We see that in, chapter five, in verse five. Paul writes, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. There are two answers to that question. There are two parts to this. There's an external reality. Notice Paul says, in Christ Jesus, the objective historical work, the person of Jesus Christ. There's an external reality, and then there's an internal application. Have this mind in you. So there's two parts with an external reality and the internal application. Now next week, We're going to fully jump into um, this amazing reality of Christ giving up, emptying himself for us, but we have to dip into it right now because verse 6 and 7 says Jesus, he, he did not consider his position with God something to hold on to, but he gave that up. He gave it up for us. 
In other words, and so be here next week because I'm excited to get into that. In other words, though, what Christ did was the opposite of selfish ambition and conceit. He didn't seek out after what was good for him. He sought out what was good for you and I. And Christ, he willingly made himself insignificant. Christ willingly gave up his glory. Christ was willing to be ignored and to be forgotten by men. But more importantly, Christ was willing to be ignored and forgotten by his heavenly Father. See, Matthew's gospel says as he hung on the cross, Matthew 27, Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why, why have you forgotten me here? Why are you ignoring my cries? Friends, Jesus took on humanity's worst nightmare to be absolutely insignificant, to be completely ignorable, to not matter at all before the very eyes that matter most he took it on he was willing to be ignored he was willing to not have his way he was willing to be forgotten before the only set of eyes that it actually only matters to so that we wouldn't have to you see friends that's the external that's the that's the cross work of christ that's what he's doing he's taking on your fear of being insignificant your fear of, of being meaningless your your fear of being ignored your fear of not mattering he's taking it all on himself and we're concerned about other people that doesn't matter he took it on before father heavenly father the creator of all reality that's the external reality paul's talking about in christ jesus now we need to talk about the internal application of that, which is knowing why Christ did that, why Christ did this for us. And for that, we, we go back to uh, Christ's high priestly prayer, prayer in John 17, 22. According to John 17, 22, Jesus went to the cross so that the glory that was his could be ours. Somebody says, the glory that you, this is Jesus praying to the Father, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one as we are one. So when you look to the cross, when you look to Christ, and you're thinking about it, you're meditating, you're reflecting on what Jesus Christ did, and you're thinking about his, his life and his sacrificial death for you, and that gets into you. Friends, <laughs> You don't need to have that influence that you think matters so much anymore. You don't have to grasp on to your reputation as if that were truly your identity anymore. When you understand that Christ did all this for your benefit, you don't have to squabble because you didn't get your way. You, you, don't, you, you, you have so much more substance and you matter so much more than that thing you think will actually give you meaning and significance. See, John 17 says, you have all the significance you could ever possibly dream of, that you matter more than any unmet desire or preference you might feel robbed of. Because the very glory of Christ himself, the very glory that you actually are hungering in and all these other things, Christ gives you in him. 
And Jesus said in John 17, I give you this glory so you don't have to fight and claw for glory in things that are just shadows. I give you the only glory that you actually ever need and truly want so you don't have to hunger and thirst for glory and make your way known and be first. You can have the same mind. You can be of the same heart. You can be of full accord, living for the thing that matters, looking to the interests of other because you, He has given you the glory you need. Friends, let me just conclude by saying this. The key to humility is knowing that you have Christ's glory. The key to humility is knowing you have Christ's glory. When you get that, when that is in your soul, you no longer feel you need to be heard. When you get that you have Christ's glory, when you know your significance, you know you matter, you don't have to throw your weight around, you have substance. When you know that the glory of Christ is yours, you can look out for the needs of others. When you know you're glorious, you're not insecure. You know, it's only when we're insecure that we tend to fight more, isn't it? But when you know you're glorious, you're not insecure anymore. I mean, just give you a brief example. Maybe this is like my hamburger one. It may not go well, but I'm just going to go for it. When Lori and I were dating, and I knew I had the affections and the love of this woman, <laughs> I didn't need any attention from any other woman. I didn't need to get looks or compliments. I didn't need women to fa fancy me or think me attractive. It didn't, it didn't matter. Because I knew I had the love and affection of this woman. I wasn't insecure. I wasn't wondering, what do these women think? You know, you're a single guy. What do they think of me? What do, I could care less. Because I had glory. When you know the glory of Christ is yours, you're not insecure. You don't have to fight for your way. You don't have to feel like you're known or, or, or recognized. You can be humble. You can look out for the needs of others because yours are met. So Paul says, have this mind which is yours in Christ because he gives you his glory so you don't have to fight for your own. That's the key to humility. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for just humility is such a hard thing to grasp because we really want to know at the end of the day we're meaningful and we have significance, that we're important, that we matter. But Lord, because of our sin, we look for it in all the wrong things. We're trying to drink out of a cup that has holes and it never satisfies. Father, help us to recognize that the glory that was given to Christ is ours. He gives it willingly to us. That's what the cross is about. Let that truth get into our souls, God, so that we can have that beauty of humility that is ours in Christ. And we thank you in his name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.